Welcome to another episode of Positively Deviant Emergency Medicine with your host, Brad Gordon. In this first episode of 2019, I've branched beyond the walls of Regions Hospital. I've found a new friend at Hennepin Health, Tom Wyatt. He trained there as a resident in the 2000s and then worked at a high-volume suburban community practice for many years following. He then returned to academic medicine at Hennepin a few years ago. He's now the medical director of the emergency department at the county, and he's got a lot to share. I was a bit nervous about interviewing Tom for the show, which wasn't helped by our designated meeting location being closed on arrival. That kind of freaked me out, but we rolled with it in typical emergency medicine style, and we found ourselves really enjoying our hour-long talk. I think we've only scratched the surface of Tom's wisdom here, but it was a good start at a look into his evolving career. I think there's a lot to learn for anyone here, but maybe even more for someone who might be thinking about a career change in their earlier mid-career, because he's done it, and I think it shows that he's pretty happy with this change and excited about where his future lies. Well, that's enough of my rambling introduction. Let's get on with my interview. Here's Tom Wyatt. Here I am with Tom Wyatt from Hennepin Health now, Hennepin County Medical Center. I bet it's a hard name transition for a lot of people. It's very hard. Some of us will uh, always continue to call it the county, the or, county. or HCMC, but it yeah. is uh, Hennepin Healthcare. Yes. yes. I, uh, it's funny because I talked to somebody else in that regard and I still get people who show up at Regions and say, where are you? I'm like, Ramsey. I'm like, well, you're pretty oriented if you can recall that old name. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I know those, those name changes could take a long time or never stick. So, uh, But welcome. Uh, thank you for being uh, willing to uh, encounter a closed coffee shop that uh, apparently surged their power out and <laughs> thought we were going to have to change positions, but they're letting us... Uh, even giving us coffee here, even though they're closed. So. Yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm thrilled to be here here with you today. So thank <laughs> right. you for asking me. Well, uh, what I wanted to get into uh, was talking a bit about your um, progression of your career because you're um, kind of in the same cohort I am. I'd say like I didn't count the years, but maybe 15, 18, less than twenty still years Correct. out of residency. Yeah. And uh, you've been through both uh, the community world and now you're in the academic world again um you've been adv uh, uh active in a few different niche areas now um advocacy diversity i'd like to get into some of those things but i'd like to start with do you enjoy your job i do enjoy my job <laughs> very much um and why well there's probably a number of reasons but for me you know my career path has always been one of uh Wanting to go into medicine, um, emergency medicine, and nothing really changed whenever I was in you know, medical school um, and when I started training. And uh, you know, I trained at, at HCMC, and I had a really great experience there. And like you said, I went to the community, and then now I'm back at HCMC. And for me, I still feel that, that it's a privilege uh, every day when I go to work. And I, the day that I wake up and I, I don't feel that way or is the day that... Yeah, you got to kind of look in the mirror and ask yourself some some pretty hard questions. Yeah, well, uh, do you um, how how has been your transition from community back to the academic world or the county medical center? Yeah, it's been um, it's very interesting. So I didn't know I was obviously you know whenever you start a new job, of course you have some trepidation about different things. Um, I felt like, you know, from the get-go, coming back to HCMC for me, I, I felt like I was coming back to family. I felt like I was yeah. coming back home. 
And that's always been very important for me. One of the reasons that I decided to go back after uh, having um, a really fulfilling practice at, at Mercy Hospital for 13 years was you know, the mission of Hennepin, uh, which we, we can talk about later, but mainly because I was going back to an environment where I felt, again, like I was part of the family and the opportunity to kind of work amongst many of the people who have mentored me throughout my career. And that was really important. And for me, it was a, it was a chance that I really couldn't pass. Yeah. And um, I'd like to hear kind of in your own words what you think, um, like, you know, Hennepin for me, I'll just share is, is a special place because it's the first place I really, I'll say, encountered emergency medicine full throttle. Um, I was a student uh, coming up from Creighton um, and spent a month there and had a lot of people really help me see. I mean, I, I, I just felt like it was, a, it was a month of being a deer in headlights, but Apparently, I did reasonably okay, and <laughs> and uh, but it, it's really got this um, amazing history to it, um, being one of such the early pioneers in the specialty. And I'd be interested to hear from you, obviously having trained there, but um, now that you're there again, how, how how is it special for you, and how do you see their mission as unique? Yeah, so to your comment about it being you know the history there, it, it is a it's a pretty storied place when you think about emergency medicine and you can read about all the, the different accomplishments you know the second oldest residency and and the you know how much research and, and things like that um but that is, we've continued to do over the years but for me you know when you think about hennepin um, as a safety net hospital one of the largest safety net hospitals in the country uh, it really drives home the mission of hennepin and that is to take care of a population um of you know, people who who generally are can be marginalized and who who generally don't have a lot of the the comforts that many of us um, um, do. And Hennepin has done such a great job over the years of doing that, and um, sometimes with limited resources. And it continues to be that 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 great place. It's a great learning environment. Um, it's a great teaching environment, and certainly provides great care to a really um, important population. Sure. Now, um, in that transition. Um, how, how do you see how you're, obviously you're, um, often mostly supervising in this role now as compared to, um, direct patient care. Um, how do you, what kinds of things do you bring back from your, uh, decade in op or more in, um, direct care in the community hospital, um, to, um, to teaching and to helping get those residents out to be just ready and practice ready to to dive into wherever they plan to go sure well you know without specifics i mean just kind of offhand you know working the community for as long as i did uh, i think i bring that that community experience and that community approach and perspective back to uh, in a teaching environment um and hennepin you know has had um a few of its faculty come from the community over recent years, but the majority of people have are largely have, have trained there or have largely been academic their entire career. So I think yeah. I do um, provide some benefit um, in that regard. Um, to be honest with you, one of the, the hardest things for me coming back to Hennepin was that I wasn't seeing my, my own patients very much mm -hmm. anymore because I really enjoy clinical medicine is probably the thing I enjoy the most about being an emergency um, physician, the procedures and, and I, and I certainly still act, uh, interact with patients uh, on a daily on a daily basis when I'm working, and I do do procedures occasionally, uh, whenever I can mm -hmm. bite the residents off. But um, 
that, that was a hard, that was a transition for me for sure. Um, yeah. But I, I, I do, um, I've had to learn, um, some ways to, to teach, um, residents, uh, you know, we had medical students at Mercy occasionally, but, and then we always taught our scribes as well, but it's been, um, you know, interesting, interesting for me to learn how to, um, be a teacher again. Yeah. And do you, um, it's, it's difficult to ask a question in a way that sounds sometimes pejorative to the lifelong academic faculty as, as I am at a different place, but um, do you find that there's been some thirst for that type of um, like, hey, what's it like outside of the uh, walls of the academic training grounds and how and how whether it's are there any specific topics that you feel like um, or something that you bring to just either bedside teaching around efficiency, billing, documentation, consultants, um, that kind of thing? I think really all those. I think if you work at it in one institution, um, then at times um, you kind of lack the perspective um, from other institutions and other yeah. environments. And, you know, I think, you know, all those things you mentioned, documentation, efficiency, um, how to interact with consultants, how to interact with your, um, your own colleagues. Um, those are things that I can certainly provide perspective on. I, I think that there are benefits of, of uh, having, um, you know, educators and faculty from, from both worlds. And what do you, uh, are there any specifics around, I think about your years in the community and um, you were often probably connected to some of the um, new hires that would be coming right out of residency. Um, did you have any sort of words of wisdom or tips about like, hey, here's your first six months, here's your first year, here's what you probably should focus on. I know you know how to drop a central line in, but you may not know how to wake up one of our surgeons at three in the morning kind of thing or... <laughs> Is that because you've maybe only been talking to resident surgeons for every surgical consult or something like that or things like that? Yeah, I, my my advice to the new hires is basically you need to ask a lot of questions and don't okay. don't feel uh, don't feel don't be afraid to do that and don't feel like that you, that um, you know you need to do everything and carry the burden on your own uh, being right. a new hire because you know part of the reason it's <clears throat> residency training is important for people is that they're allowed to make mistakes um and that and you certainly do that in the in the community especially um as a new hire but you should always um i always try to tell people that you you should always um feel like if you don't know how to get something accomplished that you need to know the right people to ask yeah and do you um around the area of documentation um since you came out the scribe and EHR wave hit is that accurate statement? That's an accurate statement. Yeah. And so you went from probably doing dictation and or handwriting some of your stuff to it's all in, well, Epic, I think, at both places. And yes. um, and you have a scribe in, um, especially in the community setting, I think almost all of the urban ER physicians end up having a scribe these days. Is that? Um, and so my specific is... Um, did you find any need to help providers coach their scribes or to supervise the work they were doing? Or could you, did you feel like um, most of now providers or residents coming out of a pro training program where they can probably expect that there's going to be a scribe unless they're in a rural setting, um, don't have to think as much about documentation, about too much or too little um, how the implications for RVUs or they're just seeing the next patient go think, into this whole thing. I think that's really a fair um, statement. Um, 
What I like to say about scribes is um, I think and probably a lot of studies show that not it doesn't necessarily improve efficiency, but what it does is that it really improves job satisfaction for, for the yeah. provider. And having said that, though, you know, some a good scribe can really make your shift go really well. Right. Uh, and with some of the, the new, new hires or people who are not used to working with scribes, um, a good scribe can really... Um, make you perform better you know they can remind you about tests that you've ordered and that they're back or maybe they can kind of prompt you to order a test that you may not have thought of yeah. so um so scribes i think are have definitely been a benefit um, um to our workflow did you find anything um about working with the scribe that you felt like you repeated over time um knowing that they're not all they're humans they're different in their skill level um so i'm going to throw out some examples like um talking with them early to set up some expectations about what I want in my note, um, having them, giving them feedback during a shift about like, why are you putting this in there? Or you got this totally wrong, that type of on the job training or trying to get them to tailor to your needs. Yeah. I think that's important to, to, to set those expectations up front. Cause again, it'll make your shift go, um, much more efficiently and it'd be much more enjoyable. Okay. And the, uh, are there other aspects that you felt, um, providers I, I in in parallel to the scribe there's also a pretty much most urban charts are coded by a coding analyst after the fact um, for both their enm professional charge as well as their diagnoses that are affiliated with that charge um did you feel like uh, providers or do you try to train providers on the the nuances or the mess or whatever kind of world you want to call it in the coding and documentation world around um the types of statements to use and things like that. Is that still important? Do you think, or do you think a lot of that has been again, like scribes kind of taken over by the coding team? Yeah. It, I've been lucky that both um, where I, where I, I worked before at mercy and also um, now at Hennepin, we have um, basically coding experts that kind of are able to want to the ones to coach us and to educate us. And then I do think it's important for our, especially our third years to kind of understand that, this is something that it's going to be paid attention to and be part of their um, RVU production and et cetera when they get out in the real world. But I like to say that you know there's really only only so many things you can control, and the thing that you can control is your documentation. Right. So really get good at documenting. Yeah. And then um, you know you can let the coders um, figure other things out. And do you try to train people in? Um, well, let me back up. My suspicion is that. Um, because you have an administrative and clinical operations niche, that this is an area of content focus. You're probably compared to many of your colleagues, I don't want to say more, maybe more knowledgeable or um, seasoned in the language of coding and billing and compliance and things like that. Is that a true statement? I think so. I think it just comes with experience. Can the longer you're in the game and the more that you're aware yeah. of these uh, certain types of things. Yes. And, and so where I was going with that is, um, are there specific... Um, areas where you try to have people document less. And the reason I bring that up is because we kind of have that conversation about the amount of time spent documenting is often a, um, a lightning rod in any clinical practice, whether it's emergency medicine or not. But um, I, I am starting to see that some of our senior residents or now grads were scribes. They only know this sort of, I'll call it an everybody gets a level five note world. And uh, knowing that that same patient may not need that, like you can't make an ankle sprain a level five, no matter how much you 
type or right. No, that's that's a very true statement, and I and I think that when you're used to when you do go out into and work some community shifts, either if you do that as a resident or um, you know when you're a new hire somewhere, you will soon figure that out because you know there are many times in um, at least at our shop where you're going to be only seeing critical patients for a shift. Um, or you may not be seeing any critical patients. You'll be seeing kind of the more, um, you know, level threes, fours, uh, right, et cetera. And the real world is that you see those types of patients kind of, um, you know, intertwined, intermingled, if you will. Yeah. And you have to get used to that workflow. And it's not a, sometimes it's not a, you can't really replicate that as well. And, and during a training, it, you know, at a training program. And it's only when you get out into the community, you're going to really learn how to kind of manage both worlds. Yeah, we kind of talk a little bit about like sometimes that's the best learning on night shifts where the lower acuity areas sort of start to close. And so you end up mixing up your resuscitation with the guy waiting on the dental pain and the woman with uh, third trimester or first trimester bleeding or something like that. And you're like, you have to intermingle that. So that's kind of been that for me that like, well, this is probably closer to real life at a place that doesn't have six pods or something like that. Totally agree. Yes. Um, Do you have any, um, um, I guess I'd like to pivot more towards, uh, you know, the wellness and sustainability in your life. Um, Obviously you've, um, I I kind of, my premise is that every survivor this far into emergency medicine has figured out some things about shift work, about sleep, about family, about um, putting first things first. Do you have any bits of wisdom that you think uh, you'd like to, that maybe that you've probably heard in lots of places, but that have been key in your life? If that. I think for me, it's that I'm, I feel like I have a, a pretty fulfilled life right now. And I'm yeah. um, on all, all fronts. I have, I have a great family. I have a great career. I'm healthy. <laughs> Um, I have a lot of, you know, friends, um, both in and out of uh, medicine, emergency medicine. Um, and I think it's important to keep up with those relationships and, uh, and put things into perspective. Do you, um, would you say you have any specific methods of trying to maintain that aspect of your life, whether it's, uh, um, tracking the amount of hours you're working, both clinical and non-clinical and, uh, or do you have more of a seat of a pants approach? I'm getting the sense by you nodding your head um, and and trying to find time to make that phone call to a friend you haven't talked to or connect with like, you know, date night or things like that. Yeah, th- those are kind of the more things. It's more, you know, by the seat of the pants. Uh, I don't really have anything that, that I use to track my wellness um, per se. Um, you know, I exercise regularly. Um, again, I, I, I make family a priority. Yeah. Sometimes that's not easy. Um, you know, when I came back to Hennepin, I was having a hard time really kind of um, juggling that, that work-life balance that people talk about. Sure. Um, and But, you know, with any new job or any um, new endeavor you start, um, those things occur. And you just kind of have to readjust and, uh, and move forward. Are there any, I mean, it sounds like you talked about just starting with your family. Is that is that kind of your MO, you think? Do you think like when it gets uncomfortable or you feel like you're out of balance, do you just, do you have any sort of starting points where you go to like, well, what do I do first? Do I go get a workout? Do I go connect with somebody? Do I, or is that uh, something you haven't really thought in detail about? You know, I guess I really haven't thought much in detail. It's something I kind of automatically I do. And I think it's both those things. It's, um, you know, we have three young children. And they're obviously a big part of our lives. They keep you grounded. They keep us really grounded. <laughs> uh, but with, you know, being around the family really um, just um, kind of re-energizes me. We travel a lot as a family. We do a lot of things as a family. 
Um, so that's a, that's really been an important part of my life. Uh, what's your uh, what's your travel list look like? What's the top few that you're like, wow, that was a really transformative trip? Is it? So we've done um, several trips as a family to South America. We go to the um, Caribbean um, a couple times a year, so we like the warm weather stuff. Sure, we're getting ready to go on uh, a nice long ten day trip to Costa Rica. Uh, with the, the whole family and in, in general I, I think my wife and I we've been married now for a little over 10 years and we've only gone on um, you know a trip without the kids maybe one or two times so whenever we travel we travel with everybody yeah um, and and it sounds like and have you been doing that since they were real little yeah I think that's the key I think that's the key to get them used to the travel so um, you know it's not and a surprise used to the travel with them right correct yeah. <laughs> absolutely it's, probably, it's just all about expectations yep. you <laughs> Like, here's what's real. Um, and I mean, and that's one of the wonders of emergency medicine, both the shift scheduling, in my opinion, as well as the prestige and financial availability that lets you decompress in that way, I think is why a lot of people feel like they can tolerate night shifts or the drunk screaming patient at them and try to find the resilience within them to not put that back on them and try to swallow that up and then go home and figure out how to um, have a life despite all that. Yeah. I think a lot of it has to do with scheduling. Um, Be really generous with your, um, with your time for yourself and also your family. My, uh, my wife is also an emergency physician. She's been, you know, working at North Memorial for 15 years uh, at a high level, but she's also, you know, she does a lot. She, um, um, she's our kind of family scheduler and, you know, Obviously, she's a mom to three energetic, you know, children and stuff. So I think it's important to to have if you're not if you're not good at it, like I'm not the best at it, um, to have someone in the family who is really good at that. And yeah. That's, and for me, it's my wife. And uh, so number one, there is you've learned to be like, okay, um, let me know. I can support you in the scheduling any way possible. Absolutely. Do you guys have a system? You have a network of Google calendars? Are you all paper based somewhere in the middle? So my wife is very old school. Yeah. Um, she is paper based, but we, um, you know, we do um, kind of sync our, our, our Google calendar so we can kind of keep up with each other. Yeah. Otherwise, you can't, there's no way you can do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty, uh, well, that's part of it is just figuring out how to, from, uh, that standpoint of having your work-based calendar, your personal-based calendar that is often shared with someone else. Um, for me, it's like anything that passes that's not in the hours of 7 a.m. to 4 p.m. needs to be on a shared calendar so that that childcare discussions can happen. And Exactly. And so anything I get forwarded like, oh, there's the holiday party or something, I'm like, oh, let me try to get that home and on the calendar for discussion. Very important. Yeah. Um, and then uh, are there any... Uh, when your spouse is someone who is uh, also in a shift work specialty, do you guys have to do special gymnastics to manage your shifts? Yeah, we're, we've been pretty lucky. You know, neither one of us grew up in Minnesota, so we don't have any family to really help us out. But we've um, we've had a couple of great nannies, and we have a kind of a network of babysitters. Most of them have been you know, scribes or are, yeah. are currently scribes. Sure, uh, they kind of come pre-screened, so that's always a good pool to choose yeah, from. Exactly. Um, so we've been very lucky um, in that yeah. regard. Yeah, I would say that's a bit of wisdom I've heard a lot in our group is uh, scribes for both babysitting as well as house pet. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Other things are both, uh, there can be uh, useful to build those relationships on a number of levels. And then do you um, do you have a routine in the day? Um, do you have like, or certain types of days, like an administrative day routine or a uh, night shift routine that, you'd, that you've found yourself settling into or... 
No, I think usually for me, you know, Monday through Thursday, I'm in the office um, most mornings when I'm not working clinically um, to do administrative work and, you know, meetings, et cetera. Um, I work clinically now a 0.6 contract. So, you know, I still work a lot clinically, which has been important for me. Yeah. But, you know, there's there's still time to, to, to spend with family and to, you know, continue to do the things that um, allow me to feel well. Sure. And um, do you, you're in Minnesota, so you've got a year-round uh, athletic uh, system, <laughs> or are you totally inside-based? No, I, I'm, I'm outside pretty much all year, yeah. Okay. I, I run uh, not as fast as I used to, but I still try <laughs> to enjoy um, running. That's kind of the thing okay. for me. Distance? Um, you know, it used to be more distance before I had both knees operated on. Oh. Now I've had to cut back, but it's still the thing, the one thing that really relaxes me the most and allows me to kind of uh, go to my happy place. And do you get a run in every day? Um, almost every day. Almost every day. Almost every day. Yeah. And when you are working, do you work some night shifts or do you have a, I know your group has some night hawk. Yeah, we have a lot of night hawks. So I'm very, very um, seldom work night shifts anymore. If okay. I do, it'll be an isolated night shift and I've never had a problem, at least up to this point doing those shifts and recovering around yeah yeah so you don't really have a special there no nope. the um the other i think that's one of the hardest things i've learned maybe uh just over time continued acceptance with um the fact that that it's it's difficult to have a routine and if you can't especially if you've got a fair amount of administrative life you have to kind of figure out some level of routine for me i have that kind of type of a day and so on this type of a day i'm doing these types of things and that helps me at least block it out a little bit um do you have any um specific on shift um especially now that you're supervising but any on shift routines either like starting up with learners or uh, just showing up uh, early or uh, trying to get a sense of how you run your shift the one thing that I do before every shift, and, and I, this is, comes from, I've, I've done this uh, since day one in the community, is I, even if I'm not assigned to you know, work uh, as a supervisor uh, in, the, in the critical care in our stabilization room, I always walk through that, that room to um, take a look at the equipment and just to kind of be in that space. Yeah. For me, it's always been important to do that. You know, that's, when you think about the stabilization room in general, it's a pretty you know, um, revered space and so it's always kind of good to go in there and and spend a couple of minutes and just kind of get perspective Uh and for me that's always something that's kind of been calming to me okay so that's one of the things i do before every shift oh okay um and are you looking at just kind of being there and mindful or are you like hey that's not stocked or that kind of level of detail kind of both really a little bit of both most of the time it's ours is pretty well stocked but i i kind of take a look at the airway equipment and then um and then to be mindful for a minute and then for me, that's good. Yeah. And um, do you, any any other parts of your shift where you go back to that or you, after stressful events or anything like that, do you have a practice? I really don't. I think it's important to, I'm, I'm a big um, believer in kind of debriefing um, in the moment or just after something has occurred rather okay. than waiting, you know, for a scheduled meeting, et cetera. I think right. that, that's where you get um, most people kind of their true feelings and sharing what they really felt or what they felt went well, what did not go well. And I think it's important to, to do that. And so that's what I've always tried to stress. Other people have different styles, which also yeah. work. That's just what I like to do. Yeah. Um, the, do you have any, um, I'm going to back out of that question right here and go to my list. Cause I think you answered it pretty clearly. Um, 
any specific things that you find yourself... I think we all have things on our shift that can trigger you or cause a lot of stress, whether it's a consultant or it's a patient type um, or a... Uh, uh, sometimes it can be just a staff member who's got a particular behavior. But um, any anything that you find yourself that you've over the years had to figure out how to like approach it in a way that doesn't let you get out of your mindful space. No, I think we all have those specific types of patients and situations that really kind of trigger the, the worst in us. <laughs> yeah. And for me, it's just kind of um, recognizing that and kind of knowing that what types of patients those are yeah. for me. Um, and then um, just really walking into the room, knowing that I need to really be careful Yeah. because, um, you know, that's when you can miss things. Whenever you, whenever you're so kind of irritated by the whole interaction or the behavior, um, that's when, you know, sometimes those people are sick as well and you have to just remember that. Sure. And do you have any, one of the things you mentioned earlier was that transition back from personal, I'm the only provider in your care to now the remote control medicine that is supervising, um, residents often, or even physician assistants and nurse practitioners. Do you, um, have you found anything that would that has helped you try to figure out how much leash to give, how much detail to get into. Um, is it kind of seat of your pants or do you have a, like a graduated responsibility in your head that, um, that is something you rely on to try to help figure out how to get people to be independent as a learner, but also, and let them make mistakes, but safe mistakes is what I'm right. trying to get at. Cause I don't, I, the reason I ask this question is I, I don't think, there's a good body of literature in medicine that teaches people how to do this. And I'm trying to discover that. Yeah. One of the things I like, I try to do, and this doesn't certainly happen every time I work a shift is I try to see the patient uh, individually without the residents. Okay. Um, just to kind of, you know, even to spend a, a couple of minutes just introducing myself and kind of asking why they're there and kind of getting their history, maybe laying hands on to do a quick physical exam. And then I, I will, um, come out of the room and, and not really even um, tell the resident that I've been in there. I mean, most of them know that I do that anyway. That, again, that doesn't happen every time, but I try to. And then I try to see, um, without prompting, what they want to do with the patient. And one of the things I like to tell residents is that I'm not trying to necessarily make you um, be the same type of doctor that, that I am. I'm not trying to teach you to be exactly like me. I'm trying to share with you my experience, how I would um, you know, treat a patient um, and you know, sometimes the the residents, um, you know, have a, a different approach and sometimes it's very reasonable. So I'm not trying to sell, I don't want you to be Tom Wyatt as a as an emergency physician. I want you to, to think and I want to share with you my experience and, and, and hope, hope that, you know, that we can both learn from that experience. And um, you, can you describe in any detail how you when you do meet the patients in an independent way from the learner, do you have any specific words or script you use to try to help them to understand your role? Cause often you may look like the most senior person coming in the room. And I think that's been something I've tried to help other early staff who are in an academic program consider. Um, how do they define that for the patient or the people in the room? Is there any tips you have to that? 
you know, not really. I, I, what I do, I do the same thing every time. I, I um, identify myself. I tell them, I say, you know, I'm, I'm Dr. Wyatt. I'm the supervising physician today. You're going to meet a lot of other, um, you know, emergency physicians uh, that are going to be taking care of you. We work as a team. And so you're going to see several different faces and, and I kind of go from there. Go from there. Okay. And then do you, uh, are you, uh, someone who, when, when you do, um, as you can see, my extraordinary podcast interviewing skills are on display right at this moment. Uh, the reason I ask is I'm trying to uh, figure out, so you kind of do have a script as you go in and then um, when a patient prompts you with a particular, can you do this or can you do that? How how do you respond to those things or when they have a request of you that I'll be specific, that you're trying to get the rest of the team to come to that plan and you don't want to get in the way of them planning that as well as you want to reassure that the, the patient that you're still at the overall helm, but that there is some room for sorting that out and letting the team do that. Sure. No, I simply acknowledge that, um, acknowledge what they've told me and what their concerns are. And I just, you know, I'll say something, um, pretty simple, like, you know, I'm going to talk with the rest of the team about this and we're going to come up with a plan. Yeah. Okay. And then when you, um, do you have any closeout type of routines in your shift? Like, uh, either, um, trying to press the team to get ready for handoff or sign out or trying to get documentation tuned up or any other just so you can get out of there any other no, we I typically um, around you know 30 minutes or so before the the next team comes on the next shift you know shift change um, I'll round with the senior resident and we'll kind of get things you know get our plans in place to make sure that we're on the same page okay yeah so you try to watch for that time and try to just get a like we're yeah. doing this here they'll be gone by then right um this one's just getting started try to make it an easy transition for the team <laughs> coming on and also to make sure that there um are another aren't other things that we need to do um with our patients um maybe things that we haven't talked about that have maybe there's some updates that uh, we're not aware of so you have to talk about those as a team and i haven't been uh, really aware of any detail of the hennepin like supervision documentation model but do you um, have any trouble with your documentation now that you're in a supervising role as compared to because I don't think you have a scribe for an attending, but maybe you do. We do on our really busy shifts, like our triage shifts, okay, and, and our, um, our overnight shifts. Um, we have scribes. Um, you know, I don't do much charting um, on shift anymore. So I, there's I always have charts to do after a shift, which is different than in the community. Sure, I left with my charts done on um, every shift. Yeah. So that's been a transition for me as well, but it's just part of, um, you know, being a teacher and being in, uh, you know, in an academic environment. And do I you think give, uh, so, so my gut is in that is that you, you're the people you're supervising are doing their documentation and it's kind of coming to you. And are you giving much feedback on that? Do you try to, um, and engage with their documentation? I do. I mean, I, it's, I think it's really, um, part of, of teaching to kind of make sure that, again that like I said before that one thing they can control is their documentation and I think if there's there's some you know glaring errors with how they're documenting or maybe they're um, they're not um, putting in enough med- medical decision making maybe they're not um, 
putting in enough of, of the aspects of critical care. Those are the things that you, you definitely, it's our responsibility, I think, to kind of to teach the residents. I appreciate you. That's where I was going to go is like, are there any specific themes that um, come up again and again that you are focused on, like missed this or, hey, can you describe more of the interaction you had or why did you end up getting this? It's not at all clear. Yeah, I think the biggest mistake I see is that the residents will minimize the level of decision making that they actually that actually goes into a chart um that's kind of the big the, the overwhelming theme that i see they, they kind of sell themselves short yeah and do you give any f um and i'm getting into some of the discussions that we're having so focused um feedback on like the types of diagnoses they're putting on the chart like the literal pick list diagnosis versus what they put in their note do you get into any of that detail not not Typically, I mean, unless it's again, unless it's completely wrong or off, off the mark. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's hard for me, it's been hard for me to try to understand. Well, I, I guess I understand the reason. I'm just not sure of the magnitude of the impact of getting that right when you have a coding professional coming behind you. If your notes are right and you've addressed of it, some of that has been around trying to. Look at, um, you know, if the classic example is, you know, somebody who comes in with a reasonably high speed motor vehicle accident or fall from some stairs or something. And you get a lot of stuff imaging in particular. And then the diagnosis is like fall or and, and, and there's not a lot of a discussing all of the areas of pain that you found on exam often maybe because of a macro and then you end up i think in that scenario where the mdm is like boy you spent a lot of money looking at a lot of things but you didn't describe how tearful this person was or how scared they were or how you really couldn't get a meaningful exam is that the kind of thing you get into when you talk yeah, about giving for sure. feedback or how much pain the, the, the patient was in you know because just because something doesn't show on a ct scan doesn't mean they don't have something that's very painful a contusion right. or a rib fracture so yeah i think again that kind of goes into a different area about what we as emergency physicians are kind of on, under the microscope sometimes in many different ways. And unfortunately, you know, some of the insurance companies have figured out ways to kind of capitalize, capitalize on that and kind of challenging that prudent layperson standard that's out there. Sure. That's true. Do you think, um, I'm going to pivot a little bit again into your transition from community into emergency medicine. I'm sure you've worked with residents now, um, or other staff when you were, um, one of the more experienced community members that uh, I'm that have the have to learn how to deal with surges in patients like uh, a bunch of new patients show up because you had a bunch of empty rooms or um, you show up and there's a bunch of people waiting to be seen is there any particular approach you try to train or that you take on yourself to dealing with boy all of a sudden I got a bunch of new people I don't know a lot about yeah I think you, you do your best to try to um you know, scan the board to see who has abnormal vital signs and who might be sick, and you go to that person first. You've got to see who is sick and who's not sick, and then yeah. you also have to rely on on your team. Okay, you have to rely not on just your your physician colleagues, but also your nursing colleagues, who yeah. can be very very helpful in that situation. Yeah, I was just talking with um, one of our colleagues at Regions, Rachel Dobbs, and she was kind of talking a little bit about just little words to the nurses, kind of like we talked about. Like, does this seem like a pretty typical chest pain workup gonna gonna happen here? Um, versus going into the room and getting a five-minute history, which you're going to end up doing, but do you launch the, right. the workup ahead of that or not? I totally agree with um, what, what her sentiment is because, you know, I, I'm sure at Regions, just like at Hennepin, 
the nurses, our experienced nurses in particular, play a pretty big part in educating our residents, especially when they're new residents and interns, about how the flow of the department works and about you know, coming to get a, a, an intern or another doctor when, when a patient looks sick. And I, the, the nurses, again, have a, a pretty big role in educating um, emergency medicine residents. Okay. And another kind of related to that is uh, on the discharge side, how, how much in the community or now do you try to delegate to the staff in the discharge of what I'll call a um, non-highly complex patient? So there's the patient where you're trying to coach them on you need to stop your warfarin. You need to do like, there's a, there's some complex patients where are, are you, but then there's the others like x-ray negative. I already told you if negative, it, it's going to be a sprain. We're going to send you home. Do you, do you find yourself delegating a lot of that to the nurse to say, why don't you teach them on all the details of sprains and yeah, let I really go. I think that's really institution dependent and not, not just, it's not just between academic and non-academic sure. community centers. It's kind of where, wherever you you're working at mercy. We, we did um, delegate a lot of that responsibility to the nurse. Um, um, and we had basically nurse discharge protocols and those types of things. Um, we, I think the residents do a lot more of that and uh, the physicians do a lot more of that um, currently at Hennepin, but Again, if you're trying to teach efficiency, um, there's probably room for improvement there. Yeah. And do you, do you, as you remember your time at Mercy, do you feel like that was there when you got there? Or did you see it develop or have any part in developing it over time? Yeah, I think it, it, it definitely developed um, over time. It, wasn't, it definitely was not in place when I was there. And then we, I think over the years at Mercy, we, we built a, a culture amongst our, our nurses where they were able to, they felt empowered and they, they wanted to take on more responsibility, which was good. And um, there's sort of this, uh, I don't know what the right word for it is, but in training, and I'll describe it with scribes or with this kind of thing, what we end up seeing, I think, is a program that's built around the residents doing a lot of the detail work. And I think sometimes it's under the construct of, well, you need to learn to do it yourself, but then a good practice once you get out is to be able to delegate that and and whether that's again learning how to write a note yourself so that you're not lifelong dependent on a scribe or learning how to discharge somebody yourself so that you're not always dependent on a nurse doing it but the flip side is most people when they get out of a program if they get to what i'll call a high functioning emergency community center where that doesn't really have every patient being seen by a resident a lot of that's being done by the nurses. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Um, probably the area that that is most controversial for different, again, institutions would be like the nurse-driven protocols, right? Through tri- yeah. triage. <clears throat> so we have we have our faculty out in triage now. We're starting to have our residents out there, which I think is an, an important thing for them to learn. Um, and you know, for most places, um, you know, nurse-driven protocols for people that have things like chest pain or abdominal pain. Um, exist and you know these these are you know tests um, blood tests IVs placed urine sent that get done automatically and I think you know for some institutions um, it, they've felt they've been a little resistant to that because they, they feel that maybe the residents aren't learning what tests to order I think though um, like you said that if you when you get to like when you look at the highly efficient places and the, 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 the emergency departments that really do flow well these protocols exist and you kind of again back to our team approach with nurses and 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 the physicians working together as a, as a team 
um, it's really important that these protocols are part of the real world and it's what, how things exist in the community. And you really, you can, there's still value in, in learning uh, when you look back at what your, your faculty and triage order on a patient, you can still learn from that when you see them in, in one of the, the main cubicle beds, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think that, um, that we're seeing that trend um, slowly happening at, at places like Hennepin. Um, and I think it's a good thing. Yeah. And I think that's where I'm, I feel like I'm trying to be supply the narrative that it's not essential to training that you order all the tests yourself. Exactly. That, um, which I think is kind of, it, as you endorsed was, maybe kind of that like oh well we wouldn't want to implement those because how are they going to learn which is kind of like saying well we wouldn't want a resident to work with a scribe because how are they going to learn to do that themselves and there may be some truth to that on a small level but i don't think building your whole program around it in my opinion makes sense i agree i agree um so i wanted to pivot a little bit for kind of on a trajectory to wrap up with you is um talking a bit more about your um the work you've been doing in advocacy first and then diversity and even the intersection of those two um, outside of your clinical shifts. Sure. So I, um, whenever I was two years out of residency, and so that would have been in 2005, um, I got asked to be on the board of directors for Minnesota ASAP. And I didn't really have a lot of experience. Uh, you know, I was a member of ASAP because, you know, as a resident, you're pretty much, you have to be a member of ASAP, right? You're just kind of, it's automatic. I didn't really, wasn't really involved at all. Didn't really know much about the Minnesota chapter, but um, agreed to be on the board. And from there, I, I um, started to develop a lot of interest about <laughs> ASAP in general as an organization and then about, uh, then um, uh, advocacy and you know, for me, advocacy, when you advocate for someone that's, you know, speaking up for a cause you believe in. Uh, it's really an important part of our profession uh, uh, as in medicine in general, but emergency medicine in particular. And I've found that over the years, and, and I've been advocacy chair for Minnesota ASAP now for uh, almost five years, is that I continually see, and I try to, to teach this to young um, people earlier in their career, that how important advocacy is, because you can really make a difference. As a physician, um, you really have a lot of kind of influence when you're talking to your legislators, mainly because you know, you're a physician and you're trying to help patients, but also they're, um, you're helping their constituents. <laughs> yeah. And um, you really can uh, have a platform, so to speak, um, when you're talking about issues that are important to your patients. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's something that emergency medicine has really made a priority. And if you look at ASAP and what they've done with their political action committees uh, and kind of their, uh, their advocacy uh, part of the organization, it's really ramped up and um, you know emergency medicine i think is has the third largest pack now out of all um uh, you know medical specialties and so it's really an impressive thing that they've done they've been able to really positively um influence legislation that have uh, helped patients with uh, mental illness for instance and you know uh, problems with opioid addiction uh, and this is on the national level so and we continue to do things in minnesota as well uh, we advocate for the poison center uh, we, again, are involved in uh, uh, opioid legislation, uh, mental health, trying to integrate um, the prescription monitoring program into the electronic medical record, those types of things. And so it's really something that I, I have developed an interest in, and uh, I think it's important. And do you have any um, words to those early grads about how they become more engaged or what you'd like to see out of every ER doc? I'm yeah. sure you've got something to add here. No, I just, you know, it's easy for me. It's just, you got to, you got to get involved. You got to make time. You, you got to make it a priority, you know? 
I'll, I'll paraphrase. I think it was Woody Allen. I always, um, I always have to kind of remember who that, that's he who said this is that 90% of success is showing up. Yeah. You just have to show up. I mean, and that's, that's, you know, a big uh, part of the, uh, the reason that people are so successful with advocacy because they're there and their voices are heard. And in showing up, are there any particular venues, whether that's like the voting booth or at particular meetings or um, in front of your legislature via? Yeah, you can do it in your community. You can find out who you're, I mean, that's the most important thing is find out who are the people that represent you right now in your district. And you can get involved in the local level. You can get involved with Minnesota ASAP and our uh, policy and advocacy sure. um, uh, um, committee. You can also get involved at the national level. I mean, ASAP has a great conference every May, a leadership and advocacy conference, which I've been to now for the last six or seven years. And it's fantastic. And uh, at those conferences, what would you tell the new person who's never been there, what are they going to learn or get out of that the first time? They're going to learn about, um, first of all, they're going to meet a lot of like-minded people and their specialty from around the country. They're going to get to hear from um, some key legislators um, during that conference. And they're going to also take a trip up to Capitol Hill and, and visit with uh, many of those legislators or their aides to try to um, you know, hear their agenda and, and to try to hear about why certain issues are really important to emergency physicians. And how many, how many of those did you have to go to before you felt like you actually started to get a sense of how the whole thing works? Or maybe you haven't figured that out yet. Yeah, it's <laughs> a tough question. <laughs> I, I, you know, I felt really engaged after the first time I went to, you did. to that conference. Right really away. Did. Yeah. Okay. And that's where I think, I think some people, particular, I'll just say that there's a large narrative in the current political climate. Like, I don't even know what to do. There's just a lot of last, yeah. lack of facts, a lot of... Um, um, just things that are spinning in ways, whether you think they're out of control or in control is a different discussion, but it's just more like they change so rapidly. It's hard to even figure out where to put your time and energy. And it sounds like you'd advocate for one of these groups as a way to kind of take the outs out of that. And angst this, this if you have it. someone who did, did not, was not involved with any of those groups um, when I first started. So uh, again, I'm a big believer and, you know, part of, part of um, politics is a little bit of a dirty game in that um, you realize quickly that, um, a lot of these decisions about policy are made by these, you know, these groups that have um, big, you know, the big lobby, um, yeah. you know, big pharma, you know, NRA, a number of different examples. And they are able to meet with the key legislators because they have the money to be at the table with them. Yeah. And that's why I think that you'll see, you've seen that medicine, emergency medicine uh, included, has really started to... to realize that that's part of the game and you have to play that game like it or not to be at the table uh, where these decisions are going to be made okay and do you uh i'm gonna back out of that one too so let's talk a bit about your work with diversity um i think that's new since you've been at hennepin is that right it's true yeah we uh our chief um jim minor um wanted to create a diversity committee and this is about a year and a half ago at our faculty retreat. And so we voted on it as a faculty that this was going to be important for our, our group going forward and asked if I would uh, be the uh, faculty chair of the committee when I agreed. And I'm, you know, I'm half American Indian. And so just because I'm uh, identify as an underrepresented minority, I'm not an expert on diversity or a race. So I've had to educate myself a fair amount. Uh, and so it's been, uh, very enlightening for me. Um, it's a very. It's something that I'm. I'm really interested in now. Yeah. We've uh, we've had a you know fair number of accomplishments for, uh, for only being around for um, just over a year, um, 
and we're going to continue. You know, right? We've actually opened up our committee not just to our faculty now, but also to our residents, and they are the ones who are um, really kind of taking off with a lot of these initiatives. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's really exciting to see. Are there any sources of good info that you would steer people towards out there that, like, you might say helped you get up to speed? If somebody listening to this is like, I'm interested in trying to what know what I don't know. Yep. So there's a lot of good resources from the University of Minnesota that has an Office of Diversity. Okay. SAEM is also a source, as well as ASEP, that they've also created a task force on diversity. So um, we just recently had a, a, a national speaker from SAEM um, who just came to speak to our residents and our faculty um, last month. Yeah. And it was the first time we'd ever had a, a lecture like that. And, yeah. Uh, so it, it was very well received. And again, this is important work. And are there any specific initiatives you've started up that, I mean, it sounds like you have that you'd be willing to share that you feel like are already showing results or just at least even in the people's attitudes around it? We started, yeah, we started to educate our, our uh, faculty on uh, implicit bias. Um, is, uh, it's one of the things that most people are relatively familiar with in terms of, uh, you know, we all have biases and kind of sure. identifying these things and dealing with them. Um, for us too, it's like you know there are a number of different initiatives that we've we've, we've thought about. It. How do we make our our hospital and our emergency department a kind of a more culturally culturally sensitive place? How do we try to hire and recruit people that reflect the patients that we that we serve? Sure, so these are all initiatives that we are that are again they're in, in their infancy, but um, really exciting. Yeah, I think that's been a lot of that you know how a lot of the national news and the events that have happened, whether it's, um, you know, the, the police and, um, their interactions with the public, um, you know, we are, I will, it's depends on who you say we're not in the streets, but the people we work with are in the streets. Um, particularly as emergency medicine physicians for the most part, I know there's a few out there that are literally in the streets, but, but as those types of things play out in emergency crisis, it's, it's I think, going to be more important than ever to have a, at least a set of communication skills that helps you see it. If not, that introspection of implicit bias to try to just figure out, like, what do I don't even see that, that is changing my behavior in a way I don't see and nobody's telling me about because they don't feel safe in telling me about it. No, that's absolutely true. One of the things that's also very exciting for... Um, for Hennepin is um, that Hennepin Healthcare is really positioning itself to be the, the first organization, healthcare organization, to um, really um, be trauma informed in terms of its approach to patients, so trauma informed care, and that has a lot to do with you know it's going to have a lot to do with educating our um, our workforce at Hennepin Healthcare, talking about things like historical trauma, um, so we can move forward uh, into really helping to make. You know, patients that, um, you know, more diverse patients feel welcome at our institution. Sure. Well, um, as we approach an hour, I'd like to wrap up by just asking you, um, you know, I, my gut is that you'd recommend your profession to like your kids or to the neighbor's kids or things like that if they showed interest. Is that a true statement? That's a very true statement. I can't, uh, I can't say anything um, but positive things about emergency medicine. And if I had to do it, to do it over again, and this is a question that many of us get asked, uh, yeah. would I do it again? And I absolutely would do it again. I can't imagine um, doing anything else um, than doing what I'm doing right now. And are there any types of um, 
like if somebody were to ask you, well, why, what would you put at the top of your list of the why? I think you opened with some of this, but I'd like to close with it too. Well, I think it's, uh, you know, you wake up every day, every, th- every day is a new day. Um, as, as much experience as you have, you're, you're, you're going to see different presentations of disease. You're going to see different humanity uh, every day. It's a privilege to interact with patients the way we do. It's a privilege to be able to help someone in their time of need. Uh, you know, the cutting edge of science. I mean, it's for me, it's just uh, something that's very, very satisfying. And again, I, I highly recommend it. Yeah. Well, I've found uh, a lot of those same things in my life, and it's been fun to try to share that through this podcast to try to get people's energies and um, and hopefully people feel that whether they're listening on headphones or driving in their car, they're like, yeah, this is a, especially, I think there's a number of physicians. I mean, clearly there's a burnout narrative, particularly there's always been one in emergency medicine. And, and, you know, I've had elements of that in my life uh, where things just aren't quite lining up and it's been hard to, um, to see the perspective. And I think a lot of burnout is really framing. I mean, there's certainly behaviors you could do, but a lot of times it's just trying to figure out, what's important and um, are you engaged in those things first? And I think by trying to interview people where that is pretty manifest just in the tone of their voice and the conversation, I hope to share that with others who might be struggling with that or um, maybe you're not now, but at some point you learn that you are getting affected that either by a job that you shouldn't necessarily be afraid to change or um, a um trying to figure out how to put the patient back at the center of at least your your work life, which is often a strategy I've learned from others is a way of just getting back grounded to why you did this in the first place. So it's well said. Thank you. Um, so thanks for spending your time. Uh, this closed coffee shop sure filled up in a hurry. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I appreciate uh, you taking a total flying leap of trust to come out here and um, talk with like this and uh, I wish you the best holiday season here and uh, look forward to our future interactions. Uh, thank you very much. I've enjoyed my time talking with you and uh, I'm right back at you. Cool. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Positively Deviant Emergency Medicine. Please consider subscribing to the podcast wherever you find your podcasts or you can listen on the web at positivelydeviant.audio. There, you can also leave a comment, tell your colleagues, or tweet me up. It helps spread the word. You can also leave your feedback to make them better, or you can give me your guest suggestions. And here's a standard disclaimer. The thoughts and views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals alone. No one you heard here represents the organizations where they work. Now that you've heard that, let's shut it down. Until next time, thanks again for listening.